while you're turning to page 1189 in your Bible, if you have what we call a pew Bible, since we have no pews, I think we call it a chair Bible. I, um, I note that Keith is on holidays and I'm filling. Not quite sure whether it makes me feel like a dentist or whether I have a shovel in my hand. But uh, it certainly is a privilege to be with you and I thank you very much for the, the privilege. God's word, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 11, 1189. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 11. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We bow in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We've been walking through First Peter with Keith, and that stirred me to go back to it and think it through carefully and see a few items that are underlined in Peter. And so last week we looked at the question of anxiety and worry. Um, we're really at the conclusion before Peter says goodbye to the churches to whom he's writing. And um, it's a real call for sturdiness. Um, and so verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. And when we stumble, verse 10, Christ himself will restore us and make us strong and firm and steadfast. Now, that's a great encouragement because we need it because sometimes we're not self-controlled and alert. And we get discouraged and we get sluggish and we get tired. But Christ himself will restore us. Um, our son Murray is missionary in Mongolia. Uh, the family's just gone across to visit them, coming in from the States and coming in from Australia. And one of them took COVID with her. And so the whole family is down with it, but they're getting better. And so they've decided for the moment not to take their holiday across to the border of 
Tajikistan and Russia, but rather they're going north to the White Lake, which is just south of the Siberian border. Um, before Murray left three months ago, I said, oh, come out and give me a hand for a bit. There's a few jobs. And so the first thing we did was to clear the pipe under the sink because it was clogged up and the water wasn't going down. So we cleared that. And then I said, Murray, Murray, have you got, an, have you got a bit more time? I said, I know that I can do the, the, the tap washes and they need doing. And I know that I can redo the seat so they sit well. But I said, frankly, I lack motivation. <laughs> and so we did them. It's the same issue spiritually, isn't it? We can, we can lose motivation in the context of our discouragement. Now, there's two things here in Peter that I want to highlight. And they're reasons for discouragement. One is suffering, and the other one is Satan. Suffering, Satan. Now, very briefly on suffering first, because Keith has addressed us on that subject. You see, suffering in Peter is not a tack-on. When you go to 1 Peter, you'll find that, in fact, 15 times suffering or suffer is mentioned, right from the beginning, right to the end, more so than in any other letter of the New Testament. In other words, he's writing to a people who know the reality of suffering and everything that goes with it, even in the very first verse. It's to scattered people. In other words, like the people who are fleeing Ukraine and landing in Hungary, and Dad's still over there fighting. They don't know where one of the children. It's that kind of situation. And in verse 6 of the first chapter, he talks about suffering grief of all kinds of trials or manifold trials. But it, it, it's so comprehensive. It's just, it's all the struggles, it's all the, all the discouragements, all the physical ailments and the mental anguish and that constant pummeling of the temptation to be not what God wants us to be. It's that comprehensive. And it does make us tired. And if it makes us want to give up, we're sort of in the same boat as these people to whom Peter is writing. However, Peter knows, and we know, and they know, that if we don't face these trials of life and those temptations and the suffering associated with it, we won't have that refining of our faith to prove it's genuous going on all the time. We grow through the struggles. A young man very, very well known to us is the kind of young man who's getting fairly close to his 20s who seems to land on his feet all the time. You know, everything he touches turns to gold. And so, somebody who loves him dearly said to me recently, he now needs to go through something that breaks his heart. There's no malice in that. It was just the recognition from a senior Christian person that the young fellow will grow through these kind of things. But furthermore, if we have a look at that first chapter of Peter, we're chosen 
to go through those trials and temptations. Because there's another one whose heart was broken. And concerning him, the Apostle John says, you want to walk as he walked. Sometimes we don't feel like walking that path, do we? We're something like the Jew to whom somebody said, but you and your struggles, you're one of God's chosen people. And the response was, yeah, well, I wish he'd choose somebody else for a bit. Suffering. We have it. We need it. We grow by it. I want to leave it at that. And I want to move to the not popular subject. That is verse 8. Satan, your enemy, your enemy, the devil. Now, it's not popular. And that's why it's not talked about much in church, is it? Because you see, the moment you... The moment you introduce the subject, the problems immediately pop up. The first one is, in some communities, the whole question of Satan and demons and exorcism is just overdone. My little brother, who's probably wandering around the Philippines or over in Bangladesh at the moment because he's a, a checker of Bible translations, um, he, when he was early teenage years, had a, had a strong sense of right and wrong, but he appeared to the rest of the family to be pretty good at wrong. I wish he was here to defend himself, but he's not, so I can go for my life. Now, he, he adopted this mantra, the devil made me do it. <laughs> now, that's okay if you're a single child, but if you happen to have six siblings, you don't get away with that nonsense too long. We'd look him fair in the eye and say, no, mate, you did it. <laughs> Overdone, you see. The second problem is the whole question of your enemy, the devil, is underdone. And the charismatic community would often look at us and say, that's your problem. The third problem is the secular view. Who is Satan? The devil? Horns? Dangerous tail, pitchfork, dark. And so on one hand, you have the Easter bunny who's nice to little kids. And on the other hand, you've got the pitchfork to scare the life out of them. A secular kind of view. But there's one more grave that we need to look at. And that is that we have tended to swallow the philosophy I say we, I say. It's happened in the church. It's certainly happened in society. To think that we are the advanced ones. Back there, they were retarded. Because, you see, we've been taught all over the place that we move from inanimate to animate, from lesser to greater, and things get better as we move forward. Not quite sure that's what Jesus said. But that's just infected the whole of the society. So some will look back and say, oh, those gospel writers, bless them. They talked about demon possession and exorcism and deliverance and that kind of stuff. But we're the sophisticated ones. We talk schizophrenia and bipolar and clinical depression and drug inducement 
because we have scientific minds. Now, I'm not trying for a moment to downplay the reality of schizophrenia, bipolar and the spectrum. Not at all. But as we think those things through, it does not cancel out what the Bible says about our enemy, the devil. So let's look at the Bible for a moment. Let's go back to the first book, In the Garden. Did God really say that? There's the tempter. We come to the first book of the New Testament. There's the tempter. You hungry, Jesus? And then the devil took him to the top of the temple and said, jump. And then the devil took him to a high mountain and said, just take a look at that. Take the shortcut. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan. We move on. Those critical church leaders, Jesus had to speak to them very firmly. You're just like your father, a liar, a murderer from the beginning. We go to John chapter 12, we read this morning. Just as happened when the 70 went out and they were amazed at what God was doing through his spirit because of Jesus, so now the Greeks come. And frankly, Jesus is thrilled to bits because all that is said about him is beginning to happen in his midst. And it's within that context that the Lord Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Peter was acting like a bit of a pork chop, trying to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. What did Jesus say? Simon, Satan has asked to have you to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And then you can go and strengthen the brethren. And then you've got Peter with the Ananias and Sapphira affair of Acts of the Apostles. You know, how is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And if you prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning, you could have prayed this way. Deliver us from the evil one. Because that's what it says. There's your Bible. Who is this enemy with plenty of personality? Personality as much as the Spirit of God? And plenty of bad press. That's what we're looking at. There's a wonderful, wonderful picture in the Revelation chapter 12. It's a court scene. The seat of judgment, eternal judgment. So you've got your accused. You've got your prosecutor called Diabolos, the ancient serpent, the devil who leads the whole world astray, the accuser of the brethren, accusing them before the throne day and night. There's your prosecution. Then you've got your defense, the lamb who overcome, overcame by the shedding of his blood. And then you have the jury and the witnesses, the very hosts of heaven. And so the accused is admitted to the court, feeling absolutely overawed. I wonder if he was thinking to himself, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within 
Abura look and see him there for an end to all my sin. A critic might have said, this is going to be the acid test. So the hearing begins. The prosecution commences. Diabolos. Your honour, he says, with tongue in cheek. You know how this fellow lived. A swindler, betraying his friends, loose morals, mocking, even you, a liar, a hypocrite. Look at his kids. They're just chips off the old block. On and on and on, accusation after accusation. And then the voice from the throne. We'll hear the testimony of defence. So defence stands, called the Lamb. O just and righteous judge, to you all honour be given. The accused is forgiven absolutely, eternally. I encourage that his chains be removed from him. Well, there's your court scene. I think there would have been a, a quiet hallelujah around heaven because it's happening all the time through the revelation. And I love to think that the accused but now exonerated one is singing in his heart because the sinless saviour died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I saw Satan fall, the snake, the prince of the power of darkness, the chameleon who could change colour for any evil deed, the angel of light. The one who's leading the world astray. That's what he is. That's who he is. Let's see what he does. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. While Murray and Elizabeth and their family were home in Australia from Mongolia, um, one of their dogs died named Sheba. Uh, Bernese mountain dog, big fella, looked like a Mongolian horse. I said to Murray on the phone a couple of days ago, how heavy was he? Because he's now been replaced by the same kind. How heavy was he? Murray said we estimated 73 kilograms. <laughs> it wasn't a horse. <laughs> Massive. But he said um, he was such a sook. He wouldn't even bark. All he wanted was a hug and a cuddle all the time and stroke him down. And if we did the same to the other dog, he'd get a bit cranky because he wasn't being cuddled and stroked. Not so here. This lion is prowling and roaring. He's out for the kill. Now, we've seen the African pictures of the animals over there. You know, the hyenas trying to take a wildebeest down. And the giraffe looking on and the buffalo there, etc., etc., etc. And it's all happening. And then the roar of the lion. 
as he declares his kingdom, intimidating, out to kill. If you want to have a good discussion with Laurel, ask her what she thinks of prowlers. <laughs> um, we were in the city of Bandung in Indonesia. Our little baby was maybe three months old, Catherine. And, um, and all, of the, all of the windows were barred. Uh, but one night, Laurel got up to attend to Kathy, two o'clock in the morning kind of thing. And as she opened the door of our bedroom into the living room, one of the windows went, <laughs> because the fella had already been in enough to go into the mosque. And all of our stuff was sort of collected on the tablecloth in the centre table, <laughs> being tied up when Laurel opened the door. Now, the problem was, that the windows, probably the, the, the screw was only about 18 to 20 mil. So that prowler never got in again because I took four-inch nails and I did my 32 nails around every bar and every window and nobody could have removed them unless he had a tractor. Prowling around, looking for the kill. There's that majestic, majestic picture in Job, first chapter. In Job, the first chapter, you have that, that wonder of our God meeting in council with his servant angels. And it seems as if the fallen angel, which is called an Ezekiel, somehow gets in the back door. And we have the Lord God saying, where have you been? Do you know what the answer was? Oh, just prowling around, going here and there on the earth. That's him. Now, one of the Apostle Paul said, the issue is not people. Oh, yes, they might twist the truth and maybe they're unreliable and hypothetical. But the real issue, the real issue, the real struggle is against the spiritual forces of evil. That's the real issue. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. That roaring lion. Well, that's what the enemy is. That's what the enemy does. Let's see what we must be in the face of all of that. Be alert. Be sober. Resist him. Stand firm. You see, there's nothing, there's nothing namby-pamby about being a Christian. This is a call to steadfastness, to sturdiness, to steadiness. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I buffet my body so that my body becomes my slave. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I have a fallen nature. I will not let that rule over me. And here's one. The Apostle Paul says, I commit to making every one of my thoughts obedient to Christ. I try that one. Every one of my thoughts. You know what our thoughts are like. And you know what happens when we turn the phone on? And when we turn the you never know what's going to land on your computer screen and where your thoughts will go because of it. We all struggle with that. And we need to take a page out of Paul's book. I am committed to having every one of my thoughts obedient to Christ. That'll challenge you for the rest of your days. But... But 
it's so real, this warfare. And Satan is at the back of it. Excuse me a moment. Of course, I've got to watch State of Origin because I'm a Queenslander down here in New South Wales and we've got grandkids who back New South Wales and all that kind of stuff, so we've got to do that. Um, it was called the most brutal yet. And so within two, two minutes, within two minutes, a Marone was down and we wondered whether he was even going to get up again. Now, I don't think he would have gone home to his mum and say, they locked me down last night. They knew it was warfare. And so must we. And that's the reason why we're told to put on the whole armour of God. Because it's real. I don't know whether you know your mission history in respect to the China Inland Mission, but it was 1865 that Hudson Taylor knew the reality of the call of God to take the gospel to China. He was there from 65 to 1902. During the year 2000 and into 2001, the Boxer Rebellion was on in China. And it was certainly anti-foreign. There were something over 900 CIA missionaries there at the time. And during the Boxer Rebellion, Hudson Taylor and his understudy DE host had to witness the reality of the death of 58 missionaries and 21 of their children. And then Hudson Taylor left the responsibility of general director in the hands of the Englishman DE host who happened to be one of the Cambridge Seven together with C.T. Studd and so on. So concerned was D.E. Hurst that the missionaries would understand the enemy that he wrote home to the home council saying, teach them who the real enemy is so that they will join forces to fight the real enemy. Because if they don't know who the real enemy is, they'll fight amongst each other. A little bit like teenagers who had a party last night and mum and dad were away. There were 15 of their mates there and there's stuff scattered all over the house and they wake up and they're tired and they're cranky and they start fighting about who's going to clean this up and who's going to clean that up and it's almost fisticuff stuff. And then somebody sends them a text saying, there's a prowler in your yard. Immediately they forget about their differences and they hold hands because they know who the enemy is. That's what the host was talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what Peter's talking about. The reality of the spiritual world of evil, we know the Lord Jesus has conquered that. Meanwhile, we join him in the ongoing battle. You see, the enemy's strategy is divide and conquer. We adopt the, the, the strategy away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because we're holding hands with the victor.
So who is he? What does he do? What must we be? Finally, let's see the context of these activities. Verse 9, you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, we've already prayed with Caleb's leadership this morning about people who face life-threatening situations. Oh, how real that is. And we need to understand it so that we'll stand straight in the midst of the battle. You know that I've been in and out of East Timor quite a lot. It's not easy in East Timor because it's one of the, it's, it, it is the poorest Asian country. It's the newest Asian country. And we thank God for Peter Cosgrove, who led the forces of peace to settle the place down. But it's complicated. But because I'm on the committee dealing with East Timor issues and we have a tremendous partnership with them, I know that the pastors there only get about $100 per month with their five kids. Oh, yes, they've got their little garden that's the size of six or eight pews. They've got their spuds and their sweet potatoes, that kind of thing. But then I go up to the supermarket and spend $200 for a week's stuff. And, you know, in reality, I feel guilty every time I do it. Because brothers and sisters around the world just do not have what we have. Hindu Bali. When you become a Christian in Bali, you're immediately disenfranchised. Your child dies. You cannot bury your child in Hindu soil. You board up the front of your shop. You can't do business. And you're sent out to the west in the direction of Java into an area that was assigned by government to the Christians because it was mosquito infested and malaria was rife. Our brothers and sisters around the world. I was asked to go to Myanmar to have a look at the situation there to see how we could help the church. And I stayed in the five mile inn. And when I was in the five mile inn, I was reading The Heavenly Man, a Chinese pastor who'd been taken in Myanmar and put into a box in solitary confinement. And he was there while I was there, one kilometre away. Our brothers and sisters around the world. I went to visit our missionaries in the Galmi Hospital in Niger. When you sort of go up the hill, you can sort of look over the, over the fence into Nigeria where the, the Fulani warriors are just going to the Christian schools and taking the daughters of Christians out and taking them away and doing what they do. Our brothers and sisters around the world. But it's right here too in our Christian schools where so many are, want so many are wanting our principals and teachers, our staff, to sign off on all things to do with the nonsense of gender fluidity and everything that comes from it. And sign off on principles that are counter Christ instead of with Christ. Our brothers and sisters around the world. We have a roaring lion as an enemy. We need to know our God. We need to know ourselves. We need to know the enemy. Let's listen to DE Host and let's listen carefully. 
If we don't know our real enemy, we'll simply fight amongst ourselves. Oh, I love the hymn. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. Strong in the strength with God supplies through his eternal son. That's the commission today. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, before we sing it, massage our hearts to believe it with sharpness and make the commitments that we see in Paul. I have determined. How we thank you for the victory that is in Christ eternally. How we thank you that he has declared Satan to be fallen. Bind him, O God. Bind him, O God. For the sake of your glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.